Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Chukot, which covers Numbers chapter 19 through 21. Name of it called Chukot means uh, statute or statute of. And the picture that we have of this particular section, and it's really brought to light through that section we just read in Hebrews chapter 9, which we're going to be getting at in some detail here today. It's a, it's a very important part because this is something that really helps explain what the whole tabernacle was for, not just the red heifer that we read about in Numbers chapter 19. Because really what we see in this section, um, it's called here, Chukat uh, Chaim, or the way of life, it talks about death, starts out with death and about the covering of death. Now, an important thing to keep in mind with this, and that's something that we saw a lot through Leviticus, is that death is not normal. We come to live with it because what? You are born, you live, you die. Sadly, some people die far younger than what you would expect for a human. Some people live far older than what you expect for a human. But we all die. And where does that start? You see it's talked about at the beginning parts of Genesis, Genesis chapter 3. In dying, you will die, or you will be starting to die from that particular point going forward. So death is natural to us, but death is not natural to the creator of heaven and earth, to the giver of life. So we see that this picture and it's expressed throughout the tabernacle, and even more so in Numbers chapter 19, is that death is something strange, and it does not belong in the, in the dwelling place of the presence of the creator of heaven and earth. And so this place that God created has no contact or with corruption, anything that is corrupted. So thus... When we were going through Leviticus, you're seeing this, this talked about all this talk about unleavened bread. You bring bread, it's unleavened bread. Don't be bringing leavened bread in here. When you have got the the priests who are serving in the tabernacle, you know they're they're you know they're not boozing it up when they're on duty because you're not having things that are in the taking on this uh, not just chametz, which is the leavened bread. But chomets, which is things that are of vinegar, that are uh, fermenting also with that. So the things of death, and you see it expressed here in Numbers chapter 19 a lot, because it's, you have, we, we call it like the stench of death. Yes, if you've ever been around something that is dead, it stinks. And... In this case, you see that it's more than just the stench of death. It is a 
like we were talking about with the sacrifices in Leviticus. That is a pleasing aroma. But yes, that's death. But it's a pleasing aroma. But just death by itself, without something to deal with it, that is a corrupting thing for all around it. And that is expressed also with this protection against the stench of death, that there would be something that would cover up and deal with this problem of death and destruction in the world all around us. And that is a picture of what is being shown here with this red heifer and the whole ceremony related to the red heifer. We'll go into that in some detail and look at some of the symbols that are involved because each of these symbols is expressing that there is life and that there is death. Death is strange, abnormal, out of place. But there is something that will deal with death. And we see that this keeping death away was expressed also, and we'll see that when we get into the book of Deuteronomy, that this death was kept away from Israel in the stench, uh, or in the, in the sense that there would be uh, no, no um, serpents, there would be no scorpions, there would be no things that would come in to attack the people. So that passage that we were looking at in Numbers 21 in the section today, are, a lot of translations say that, that the Lord sent, but in a sense, really, the word is talking about the Lord released the serpents, that there was a hedge of protection. You always hear that phrase used, but that hedge was lifted because it fits with the context of the grumbling. What were the people grumbling about? Well, here, you've taken us along, but you've not taken us in the way, into the land. Well, hasn't the Lord already been providing? And then the people grumble about, all we have is this miserable food. Well, who is providing the daily bread all the time? So we see also something, and we'll be taking a look a bit about that, another sense of where we see snakes coming in to bite. We see an example of that in the book of Acts, where when Paul was being dragged off to Rome, that the serpent came out, and you know, it's, like, <laughs> it's, it's kind of an amazing thing when you see the passage, it says that they, he pulled his hand up, and there was like the serpent attached to it. So it was like digging in, and he just shook it off into the fire and kept on going. Well, in our normal day of life, what would you expect to happen, especially if it was a deadly serpent? Death. At least severe sickness, you probably wish you wouldn't die if you didn't actually die as a process of it. Well, if you have the one who is the creator of heaven and earth that says, you know, you've got this promise, you are going to go to Rome. You are going to go there. Very similar to what uh, you see expressed with um, Avraham when it says that, hey, you are going to have um, descendants through your son. And the son, Itzhak, was going to be the one that was going to carry this message or the, the legacy forward that was given to Avraham. Well, what then would happen when he was ordered to offer up his son, his only son, 
you see it reflected in Hebrews chapter 11, it's like, well, he could then say, well, the creator of heaven and earth would resurrect them if it ever got that far. Because this death is not a barrier for the kingdom of God as it is for us here today. So, so uh, another thing that we'll see, and we'll focus on this a bit in Numbers 19, is this picture of the red heifer. It just seems like this very strange um, this strange ceremony that's involved with this red heifer, the, the, the crimson thread, the hyssop, the cedar wood, the living water, and you know, you're, it looks like you're treating it like toxic waste because it's outside of the camp, and anyone who has any contact with it whatsoever has to basically go through decontamination before they can come back into the camp. But what are the ashes of the, hef- the, the red heifer what are they good for? Purifying everything. It is like the ultimate cleaner of the stain of death. It is the ultimate cleaner. Although it itself is treated like the ultimate pariah, which has been a big mystery for our uh, brothers and sisters there in the, in the house of Yehuda, um, the ones that have not fully recognized who, who the Mashiach is. This is a mystery, what you'll often hear it described as such, the mystery of the red heifer. Well, we have a, we here with the testimony that we have of Yeshua and his apostles, we have a look under the hood of what that mystery is all about. And that mystery is revealed as to what is going on through Yeshua. So now we go and dive in because we see that the ultimate, the ultimate course of what heaven is going to do is reverse the stain of death. We see it in the book of Revelation. We see it in the prophets in the latter part of the Hebrew scriptures. So diving in deeper. Now just a reminder, this, is, this section is called chukat or statutes of. Well, there's like three buckets of different types of instructions that you have in the Torah. You have the uh, chukah, which is what we're, with its title of is our section here today, which is translated either statute or ordinance. And you could say that that is the application, what you do from it. Well, the application comes from what? The mitzvah, as it is in Hebrew, or it's commonly translated as commandment. Now, that is the, the principle, the thing that drives everything forward. So you take the principle, and then you apply the principle to your everyday life, and then it's what we call case law, or um, that comes down to judgment, or the mishpat. So you have the mitzvah, the principle, goes to the, the chukah, or the ordinance, the the, the law, the code, and then the code goes into case law or judgments or the mishpat. So, how do you apply the um, how do you apply the ordinance to a given situation where you have the, the case law? Now, there's been a lot of news in our country here in the last few weeks about these three things: the mitzvah. We call that, in our country, the Constitution of the United States. 
is the mitzvah. It is the principles. And before that, we just celebrated the 4th of July, which is, is actually the mitzvah to the Constitution. So the Constitution expands upon the Declaration of Independence. And thus, from those two, then come, we have the, the chukot, or the, the code of the United States, which goes on and 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 on. And it just keeps getting added to all the time. And then what we've had here just recently with the Supreme Court ruling on such, you get the mishpat, or the judgment. Now, in our last Torah portion that we went through, we didn't focus on that specifically, but in there it talks about the what you offer or what happens if the, the leaders, the, the judges of Israel mess up on something. They judge incorrectly. What happens? There is an offering that's involved with that because you are acknowledging, hey, this something has gone wrong here. We need to acknowledge something has gone wrong and say, well, the point of acknowledging something has gone wrong is to do what? To step back from it, right? Not just put the pedal to the floor and just yeehaw, go right off into even further error. If you recognize that you've gone off track, you do what? You Teshuva, you turn around. You turn around and head the opposite direction because you realize you're going the wrong way. You know, it's like if you get lost in the woods or whatever and you realize you've gone the wrong way, what do you do? You go back to a point where you knew where you were going. You don't just say, well, I'll just kind of head off this way. Well, you can, but that's probably not a good good plan. <laughs> You'll just go from lost to even more lost. Best part is to go back to a point where you knew for sure you knew where you were going, which is a great principle in life. That's why when the ways of the Lord are called the, the derek or the, or the way of the Lord, and following along it is called the halach, the walk of the way of the Lord. You walk on the way. The way is in front of you. It's a road. So you walk in the way. The way, the, the trail, the road has been put out before you by someone who you would hope knows where they're going. And then if you walk in the way, that means what? You will get to where you should want to go. But just like with a road or a trail, if you are going to walk in it, what are you doing as you walk along the way? You, you put, put your signs up so you can find with the breadcrumbs, uh, dropping stuff behind, you know. Um, well, we, we use this word faith, but really that's what you're doing when you halach along the derek, along the way. You are having faith that the road, the path that you are going on is going to do what? Lead you to the destination that you're think, think, thinking that you're going down. So that is a lot of what, the, when it talks about the ways of the Lord, this is what it's referring to. Mitzvah, chukah, mishpat. The principle, the code, the application, the case law of it. How do you apply it to your life? Now, 
as I just had this little circular uh, graphic here saying that they should all be fitting into each other. By the time you get down to the mishpat or the judgment, you should be able to take your mishpat or your judgment, point it right back to your mitzvah or your principle, and it should align. If it's off course, then you know what? There's, there's a problem. Kind of like when my math teacher always said, if you're working at a solution and it goes to infinity, you know that something has gone wrong in the process. Because uh, <laughs> that's what good hallmark of a bad solution is for things to go to infinity. There are some, some cases where it can do that, but uh, oftentimes if it's headed off to infinity, something has gone wrong. All right, so that is a good starting point for uh, where we go forward. Now, the talk about the red heifer. This is a picture here from 2010 where they were taking a look at some candidates for the red heifer. This is from the... The, the Temple Institute, which has been trying to put things together for, they've put together um, based on their best um, study of the word on what some of the, the, the garments of the priests, the emblems and um, the furniture of the tabernacle, the temple, were supposed to look like. Now, it's very interesting that when you, when you see their discussions of things, they said that there's two things that are missing. Why they are not like pushing wholeheartedly into um, even redoing the tabernacle into a tent. Two things. One of which is we see in this picture right here, the two, the red heifer. That's one thing. But more important, they'll say, than even the red heifer, because... That's one of the mysteries that we'll be looking at here further is you can't get the priesthood without the red heifer, and then you can't get the red heifer without the priesthood, which is another big mystery that goes into there, which is why like, how does that kind of work? So one of those thoughts is probably Moshe may have been the first one. It's debatable, but that's an idea that he was the first one to kind of kick it off because you needed somebody outside of it to kick it into place, which is why they say that the second element is more important than the red heifer, and that's the Mashiach. You're not going to get the tabernacle or the temple without the Mashiach, because just like I mentioned, somebody has to uh, get this thing started. Moshe was the first one. Well, we don't have anybody. Moshe is not around anymore. So who then do you have? The Messiah the Christ, the Mashiach, that's the only one that can get things rolling again. Now, kind of gives that very interesting picture. When we get into Deuteronomy, we will hear again that Moshe says, you know, listen and look for a prophet like me, which is a good hint. That's, yes, that's a good idea. You should wait for the Messiah be the one to kick things off to get rolling again. Messiah is hugely intertwined with the red heifer symbol and the tabernacle, the temple, the dwelling place of God on earth. Uh, Anne, do, do you have a comment or a question? I, I understand. I mean, maybe I'm wrong. That, that the, the Jewish uh, in, in Israel, the heads of the 
what would have been the Sanhedrin or whatever now. They're they're trying to get the priesthood restarted. So, you know, so, I mean, basically in this world of flesh and blood still, that they're going to try to get a a high priest again in Israel to restart the priesthood so that they can do the red heifer um, purifications uh, over again. So, um, but this would be not not in the light of well, the the light of the new Mashiach coming. I mean, that's why they see they see it still that Messiah hasn't come, but we'd see him as coming a second time. But. The priesthood is being trying to be reestablished. They're getting the garments ready and the rest of the outer needs. Yeah. Now it's it's very also interesting that in the passage that we had read here today from Hebrews nine, it talks about uh, not only very much like the uh, this line of uh, Judaism, which is then looking for the Mashiach and the red heifer to reinstate things with the tabernacle temple, but also why it is that the Mashiach coming is hugely important with this as well from us as believers and also into the aspect of what the tabernacle is and what it functions for as, as uh, Larry very helpfully uh, clarified that it doesn't say it's a mere shadow of things or a mere copy. I mean, a mere copy of things. It is a copy. And we saw that back when we saw the initial instructions for the construction of the tabernacle back at the end, last few chapters of Exodus, where it says, make sure that you build this after the pattern shown to you on the mountain. And that's repeated and quoted again in the letter to Hebrews that make sure it's shown that you, f- you follow the pattern that was on the mountain. So there is no um, concern about there being a, a tabernacle that is not in function because the tabernacle was a pattern of the things in heaven, which is what the letter of Hebrews is bringing into bearing, that there is this priesthood that is still in operation, whether this earthly tabernacle, whether there has been a ichavod or the glory has departed, whether that has happened to the physical tabernacle or temple or not, that priesthood in heaven is still operating and has always been operating and will continue to be operating. The patterns that are shown, they're not, and as Larry correctly pointed out, they're not mere or only or just a copy. They are a copy, meaning they are, like we were talking about earlier, they are the darach, the way. (laughs) It makes it very interesting, uh, horrible Uh, English Hebrew pun, but they are the direct way. The direct is the direct way. So you follow that way. And that is what the copy is showing. It is, it it is a, a symbol. uh, We use lots of other terms for it. We use like an analogy, you know, you show something to help you understand something else. Use a metaphor. Metaphor is something to help you understand something else. The Mishkan 
is something to help you understand something else, meaning what heaven is doing and what this is all about. And that is why the letter to the Hebrews is a huge gift to all of Israel because it shows what the red heifer is all about, what the day of atonement is all about, what the tabernacle is all about, and what happens when it goes in and out of operation. Do you suddenly, does heaven suddenly get shut off from you? if the physical tabernacle is not there or not. So um, Judaism came around to that realization a couple centuries and in, into uh, what, two, 300 AD when they had the great council and they came up with, um, we got Yom Kippur coming up and some of the principles that came through with the Yom Kippur service, that it is something that is able to continue even if there is no temple, even if there is no goats, no high priest, those things you can still take that day of atonement idea the 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 spirit of it you could say forward is because the realization hey this is uh something that is a like as mentioned in exodus a pattern of the things in heaven yes alex um yeah i was i think i was always under the impression once the temple was gone it's done but um Reading up on the first century and as well on the uh, Messianic, or the uh, complete Jewish Bible, um, the Essenes and the people at that time, probably James, Yeshua's brother, they said, this temple's dirty. Before it was destroyed, we're going to do out in the wilderness. So it's almost like they could still do their uh, devotion and the sacrifices outside of the temple. So maybe it's always been a little more movable than um, I thought. I mean, these people are yeah. obviously very, very devoted. Yeah, and it's it's been an interesting curiosity that you've had in uh, in recorded history and uh, also in uh, Jewish thought over time because there have been multiple uh, temples. There was even a temple in Alexandria, Egypt, at one point um, for. There were a huge Jewish congregation that lived down in uh, Egypt at that time. Yes, Alex. Uh, a follow-up to it is uh, they were all pretty much strictly vegetarian um, because they didn't trust the sacrifices. So it mm. was kind of a temple. I don't think they were sacrificing in their wilderness temples. Let's just play it safe and we'll be vegetarians yeah. because maybe we can't really do that here. So Well, I mean, what, one, of the, one of the things that... Um, you see, the Apostle Paul actually addresses that in one of his letters, talking about that there are some people that don't eat meat, um, and that in the in the context of, well, it, it was in the in the context of um, that, and specifically was written to the um, congregation in Rome. So historically, one idea from that is thought to be that it was related to kosher butchery, and that if you did not have a totally kosher butcher would you even if the meat were otherwise considered to be clean it was right in from the right category you know they had let the blood out and such but if it wasn't totally considered kosher was it still considered um uh, unclean and you know paul was making the 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 note saying hey you're taking it the prohibition a little bit too far in that regard and uh, taking something that was a tradition of what kashrut, kosher, totally means, and making that a commandment. 
You're moving it up from, <laughs> we were talking about earlier, you're moving it up from a mishpat to a mitzvah. And you have to be very careful in moving it up like that because you can have lots of things that are, you know, that are mishpats, judgments, uh, traditions that are fantastic and really take your spiritual life forward. But be very careful then moving that up and say, you know, the Lord commanded to bump up. Because that was one of the issues that you see talked about in Mark chapter 7, where you take in the washing of hands, which is something to, uh, specifically talked to the priesthood, specifically for their service going in and out of the, you'd say, the divine operating room known as the, the tabernacle. So that was specifically for them for that specific point. Now, the Pharisees, one of their things that they did was they took uh, teachings from the tabernacle and moved it out into everyday life, which is where the synagogue construction, some of the elements of it, you know, the ark and the the bima and stuff like that. The those elements, and they're even taken into a lot of uh, uh, Christian churches today with the way that the sanctuaries are laid out and everything, patterned after um, the the tabernacle, the temple to some degree. Now, those are great teachings and they help you focus your mind on things that are going on, but you also have to remember that those are not a thus saith the Lord sort of thing, which is what Yeshua clarified. is like, hey, it's great that you want to make sure that you're, you're clean and your hands are clean and you have the washings. That's great. But be careful that you're not just washing the outside and the evil the nastiness on the inside is not ever dealt with so that's where yeshua talks about it's not what goes into a man but what comes out of a man so hopefully that that helps a bit with this so the red heifer is a great lesson that we have of the one of the things that the lord is doing in cleansing and dealing with evil. Now, just a, a few highlights of what the word actually talks about here um, that have gone into uh, tradition. Now, the Numbers 19.2 says that it is unblemished. Now, unblemished by tradition is going on to mean that you have no two hairs next to each other uh, that aren't red, so you have to make sure that you have uh, um, a consistent coat and that the, even the hooves are red, and it's often thought that the 10th the um, red heifer was going to be a harbinger of the final redemption. So, yes, Larry. Well, neither one of those could make it, really. They've got white around their eyes. <laughs> yeah, but it's, 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 it's in the sense that there is a consistent red coat is the idea of that. Um, you, you have a... And, that's why there has been so many candidates and so many rejected because they have a very rigorous, uh, rigorous standard for that. But one of the, the key lessons that we have from the red heifer, the red, the red crimson cord, because it's not only just the red heifer, but it's the water that the ashes from the burned up heifer are put into with the cedar board, the hyssop, and then you also have the crimson thread in there. So red, red, and hyssop there for uh, purification 
and um, sanitation, you might say. So you have this picture that all of the elements of this, because red is, that's an easy one, right? Red relates to blood. So we are Adam from Adama, and we are full of Dam or blood. So Dam redness, the redness is all throughout us. Now, also you get the lesson that we saw in Leviticus, and you see it back in Genesis around the time of the flood, that life is in the blood, and which is an easy one. You open a vessel, and enough blood goes out, what happens? Death. Unless something significantly <laughs> happens to turn the situation around, it's, it's uh, not looking good for uh, the person or animal or that has that happen. So thus, you have the, the picture of being full of life and also that life going out of you. An interesting lesson that goes through in that. So, also, uh, you have, we have um, scarlet thread, preservative, red, dirt, blood, life. So, we see some examples of life of the flesh is in the blood from Leviticus 17.11. That's, it is the blood by the reason of the life that makes atonement. So, that's something that comes right after Leviticus 16, where you have the instructions for the Day of Atonement, here you have a clarification that, hey, this is something, the reason of the life that makes the atonement. So the whole thing that you saw in Leviticus 16 with the two goats, again, a metaphor, the symbol of it, the pattern that was shown to Moshe of it, you have the two goats, one that you lay your hands on and then it becomes its blood goes in to cover over the to cover the dwelling place of God there in the tabernacle and then the other goat is taken away from the congregation so a picture of your sins transgressions and iniquities taken away taken out of the camp and gotten rid of Another example we have of this is from Isaiah 118, where a famous passage that, you know, that let us reason together, thus says the Lord, though your sins are as scarlet, they will be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Again, a reminder that the, our picture of our ability to clean things up in and of ourselves can only go so far. There is a way that goes beyond that because as we went through Leviticus, sins and transgressions, there's like a, it's like a stair step. It's like a stair going up. Sins are, you know, it's, you literally comes from the aiming at a target and you miss. Oopsie. Then, transgression is more of the realm of i knew the good that i was supposed to do but what you didn't do it and iniquity is the i didn't want to do it i did not want to do it yes 
I'm going to do what I want to do and do it anyway. And for those things that we can deal with ourselves are the oopsie and the, oh, I, there was the good that I was supposed to do and I didn't do it. But for the, I didn't want to do it, the realm of rebellion, the things that just go far out beyond that, that is something only that the Day of Atonement is what takes care of that. That is something that only the high priest is able to take care of. So thus we have the lesson that comes down to us with the red heifer, that there is something that is put into place. Now, it's very, very interesting that they, this uh, particular reconstruction, this uh, artwork of the red heifer outside the camp, here it's pictured as being across the, the valley from Yerushalayim and the causeway going into one of the gates of the temple uh, as to where you would take that in. Now, very interestingly enough is, uh, what does this causeway also look like? What are the, the pictures that we have of the coming of the Mashiach? Yeah. And coming in then into the temple. So it's kind of interesting that you have this picture coming from outside the camp into the camp and being the one that to kind of kick things off, again, connection between the Mashiach and the symbol of the red heifer. So, uh, yes, Larry, go ahead. Wasn't that specifically Golgotha, where, he was, where the red heifer was burned? Yeah, there, there are uh, pictures as to uh, where that is, but definitely, you know, outside the camp. So Golgotha... Um, some association with, with that area. With the, with, the, with the one who died there to yes. cleanse there all some, of us. Some uh, di- differences of opinion where Golgotha is, but um, where you see in that association, yeah, there, there could be a, a good case made that you're talking about the same sort of areas. So an interesting picture of that, a place of the, place of the skull, place of death. So that which from death then comes life. A very, a very uh, sobering picture. <laughs> Between who the, who the dyer is, yes. So, yeah. So, again, we get this interesting picture that everybody involved with the red heifer gets contamination. The... Um, the high priest gets contaminated by dealing with the red heifer. The attendant who burns it gets contaminated by the red heifer. But it is required for sanctifying the sanctuary. So that is where then we start getting into the interesting connections between the red heifer and Yom Kippurim, or the Day of Atonement. So with the red heifer, in Numbers 19.4 talks about the seven sprinklings of blood and from Leviticus 16, we see that there are seven sprinklings of blood that come with the goat, the goat for the Lord that is offered in there. And with the red heifer, we see that the ashes cleanses one from contact with the dead. And in Yom Kippur, we see that the blood of the goat for the Lord covers sins, transgressions, and iniquities. And iniquities are what? 
sins that lead to death because you yourself are not going to deal with that one. That is one that is just going to take you right down the road toward out of the kingdom if those are not dealt with. And the one who can deal with them is the Mashiach. So then, getting back over to Hebrews chapter 9. So again, this is a good thing to remember is that this is a part of a, we're dropping into in chapter 9, a long discussion. It really starts picking up speed in Hebrews chapter 3, but really it goes from the first chapter. The first chapter, first verse of Hebrews, all the way up through chapter 10 is really, it's like, it's like Romans. Romans, uh, most of it is one long argument. And dropping right in the middle of it, you can start getting the wrong ideas of things. They build, 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 build up. So in the book of Hebrews is the same way. You start out with why Yeshua is so superior to any other messenger that has ever come to Israel from any time. So specifically in chapter 9, just uh, going over this passage again in Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11 through 15. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood he entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. So thus... Um, one thing that you see over and over again in the letter to Hebrews is the arguments that you'll see very common in Hebrew literature. It's called uh, kalvachomer, or light and heavy, meaning it takes the form of usually it'll make a statement or give some sort of a situation. Well, then how much more is this? If you accept this light, thing is true well then how much more is this true which is has far more significance and that is what we see here in chapter 9 and it's throughout the book is that in this particular case that the blood of um, goats and calves that is a symbol if you accept that this is a part of the way of cleansing well then how much more is heaven's messenger, heaven's Mashiach, going to the blood of heaven's Mashiach, going to take care of the situation. So, and it goes on further here. And um, for the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer, sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Thus, you see the importance of the covering of iniquities, because iniquity is what? You're headed far off from God. So if you are accepting heaven's covering of that, your conscience, meaning the stain that you have in front of heaven, to be able to stand there in front of heaven and say, um, I truly have nothing else against me because 
everything that was before has been covered over. The sins, the transgressions, the iniquities, those have all been covered over and have been removed from me, just like what is um, illustrated through the Yom Kippur service, that those sins, transgressions, and iniquities are covered and then removed from me. Thus, I can be before God with a clean conscience because there's no stain, there's no closet that's full of junk that I just shut the door on hoping no one sees it. Although, heaven knows all of our closets and all the junk that's in our closets. Yes. Yes, Rose. Well, I think it's a wonderful, wonderful thing that we are living in this age because we are living the promises of God. Amen to that, In yeah. Jeremiah 31, 31, he said, uh, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they broke. Although I was a husband to them, saith the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts, and I will write it in their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor, and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Yeah. We are living that promise today. Hallelujah. Yes. We know, we know very well when a thought comes into our mind and, and, and we go act it out. It is written right here. Mm. We know in advance it is written. Now, if we go ahead and go ahead and go with it, now, now when we decide to come to ourselves, now we have to go before the Lord. And we have to ask for that forgiveness. And praise God that the Day of Atonement does take care of those sins and iniquities. Without Christ, we don't have, we don't have a prayer. <laughs> so uh, everything we ask, it, it should be in his name, and, and especially when we sin before God. Yeah. And that's, uh, it's great you uh, quoted from that passage. That passage is uh, what's known as the prophecy of the New Covenant. Um, the second witness to that is over in Ezekiel chapter 36, verses uh, 25 and 26. But this particular passage that she just quoted there from Jeremiah chapter 31, if you go to Hebrews chapter 10, it's like the third quotation from that very passage you'll see in that, in that particular uh, chapter of Hebrews chapter 10. And what is it talking about? Yom Kippur. That is the topic of Hebrews chapter 10 and also Hebrews 9 and the, pa the passages go all the way back to pretty much the beginning of the letter. And also, you know, when she was mentioning there that prophecy of the new covenant, that one of the, the great promises is that they will all know the Lord. Uh, 36. Yes, Ezekiel 36, verses 25 and 26. It goes on 27 too. But um, the 
passage there which she was talking about that they will all know me. When you read one of uh, Yeshua's final discourses to the 12, it ended up being to the 11, but to, to the 12 it started out with. They're in the Gospel of John. You see the, the mention there of one of them asks Yeshua, show us the Father. And what is the response from Yeshua? If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So thus, Rose, absolutely correct that this thing is being played out, the new covenant is being played out, and that was what a part of the mission of the Mashiach here on earth was to show us the Father so that they would all know the Father. They would all know who the Father is, which is where Hebrews chapter 1 starts out. You want to know who the Father is? Father sent lots of prophets, sent Moshe, and then specifically sent the Son to be the great witness. And then it starts building, building, building the resume of the Son of God throughout the rest of the letter of Hebrews. But the important part is it mentions here in uh, Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 15 that this is not just covering it, but cleansing your conscience from it. Because it will go on in Hebrews and say, thus you can go before, you can go through the veil. Just like in the Day of Atonement, the high priest goes through the veil with the ephod, and it's got bearing the names of Israel in the chest and on the shoulders, going in there, bearing the names of Israel into the presence of God. And that we can go in there with confidence. Why? Because our consciences are cleansed. The iniquities, the sins, the transgressions, those are all cleansed and gone and removed. Yes, Rose. I, I would just like to add that uh, although God forgives and wants to hear it no more, we must always remember the enemy always wants to bring it up and throw it in yes. our face. The accuser of the brethren, you yes, betcha. He's, he's right there, Johnny on the spot. Uh, oh, you think really God forgive you that? No, he, no, he, you know, just like he lied to Eve, he lies to us every day. Yeah. And tries to tear us down and bring us down. Yes. When uh, I like to tell him, though, uh, I say, you know what? I don't live in yesterday. I moved. I live in today. <laughs> I, I have a new address. A I new address. Today. Like that. Yeah. But that's, yeah, that's, that's hugely important when the accuser of the brethren uh, comes around that we, we talk about have faith. We trust that. That is true. The, he actually will cleanse our conscience, that there will be nothing on our conscience. That we truly have to trust and let that go, that there truly is nothing between us and heaven anymore. Now, in some of those things, there may be in the case where we have done some incredible harm, which is also a part of what the Torah talks about with its um, systems of restitution. You know, if you've taken something, you pay it back and then add 20% on top of it. Why? It's a part of the lesson, 
not only for yourself, but for other people around you, that, hey, there has been a breach between people. And these breaches between people are serious. So you need to take that seriously. And I don't know about you, but for me, adding 20% on top of what it was that was already involved, uh, for me, that would be significant. Because uh, I don't like to pay more than, than I should. And often uh, I always suffer from buyer's regret when I realize, oh, man, I could have gotten that for cheaper somewhere else if I had just taken a little bit more time and uh, shopped around a bit. But this passage then goes on. Hebrews 9, 11 through 15. For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of transgressions, that, are, that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. And uh, just like what, what uh, Larry was mentioning there about uh, a mere copy of things to come in, in Hebrews, that passage uh, where you have a first covenant, the covenant is not in the original uh, text either. It's Supply there just says the first. And that's a conversation that goes back a few chapters into Hebrews chapter 7, where it talks about the first priesthood and the second priesthood, which is really what the conversation is about. The Melchizedek priesthood versus the Aaronic priesthood. The Aaronic priesthood is what was the pattern shown on the mountain. And the pattern shown on the mountain is pointing to the really the, Mal- the Melchizedek priesthood, that which is has always been in business and will continue to always be in business, always there interceding for uh, the people of God, anyone who wants to uh, come near to the Creator of heaven and earth. So, as we go on in in Hebrews chapter nine, some things that come out of this conversation is. The light and heavy arguments. So, you have Yom Kippur that cleanses from sins, transgressions, and iniquities. The high priest has to call upon the greater cleansing. So, the priest, high priest has to be cleansed. That's a part of what we saw in Leviticus 16. The priest has to offer things for himself. To cover himself. And... Uh, going on, uh, one of the interesting things is that the <laughs> the idea that the high priest would have to be cleansed by the red heifer leading up to Yom Kippur uh, perhaps is one of the key things that ends up coming out as a lesson to future um, generations in what happens when the temple goes away. Can the Day of Atonement service still continue? Yes, because if, if you ask any Jew today, why are you at Yom Kippur? Because of what we would call faith, trust. You are trusting that when you are praying, you know, for the sins that I've sinned against you, the sins that I've sinned against you, da, 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 um, we ask for forgiveness. That, that truly is forgiven and covered, even though there is no temple, no high priest, no goats or a place to offer them. 
Yeshua, of course, does not need the cleansing of himself from the stain of death. That he actually would run into the face of death. He would be the one that would embrace the death upon him. Now, interestingly enough, that one of the lessons that we have from Numbers chapter 19, where it talks about that you don't be in the same room as a dead body, you don't uh, have the air that's around a dead body will contaminate things, that picture of death is, has like an aura around it. Well, that came into the tradition that uh, in Jewish culture of um, graveyards and graves to be very clearly marked so you're not uh, walking on people's graves or being in the proximity uh, of a grave or a dead body. And one of the ways that you'll see uh, talked about in some of the rabbinical literature is one of the ways is, of course, you would um, mark or uh, plaster them white, what we call whitewashing, to make sure that they are very, very distinguished. So thus, a very interesting thing that you see in a chastisement that Yeshua gives on some of the scribes and leaders at the time talking about what? That you are like whitewashed tombs that look great on the outside, but what? Inside are full of, yes, full of death. So, pointing to experts in the Torah to say, okay, you are full of death. Now, what does that tell you? You need to be cleansed from death. You need to be cleansed from death, but you go up to the temple. At that time, you had the temple in operation. The temple would be in operation for at least another four decades. And you could actually go through the process of the decontamination. But this is a different kind of decontamination because, yes, they could say, we specifically have not been in contact with a grave or a corpse. But just like in Mark chapter 7, the defilement, the uncleanness is where? Within. It's within you. That is where the dead man is. The dead man is within you. So how do you clean that? You go up to the temple to get the washing of that, and you still have really death inside of you, death before God. What is the red heifer going to do for you? Even though that is specifically the thing that is being referred to. Yes, that can be from the, being the physical proximity of a physical corpse, but what about the death with inside you? What is the only way that can be, that can be dealt with? It's the same way it always has been. You know, when you read Psalm 51 or you read Isaiah all the way through and you read the other prophets, these sacrifices are there as the pattern shown on the mountain. They are to point you to what the greater things are. So thus, if you are not willing to deal with the death, the dead man, the bones inside of you, there is no outward thing that is going to take care of that. The outward things are all about a connection that you are making with heaven, and you are 
going through the metaphors, the allegories, the types, the patterns, because this is a part of a transformation of what's going on inside of you. They're not going to change what's going on inside of you. They can help you and tell you where to go. It's like the road that's laid out in front of you. Walk in it. Well, only if you actually want to go where the road is going. If you don't want to go where the road is going, how is the road going to help you? You won't get to the destination if you don't walk down the road. So that's a lot of what the lesson of the tabernacle and all the Torah is about. It is the way, the path, but if you don't want to walk in it, that sadly is when we read some of the uh, writings related to the day of the Lord, like book of Revelation, the other prophets where it talks about the day of the Lord, that sadly is going to be another condition is that it will become clearer what the road that leads to life is and the road that leads to death. But for that road that goes to life, which will be the only road that keeps going after the day of the Lord, you have to actually walk down that road. As Yeshua used the, the, um, the metaphor of wide and narrow roads. Wide is the road that leads where? To destruction, to death. The narrow is the way. Narrow is the gate that leads to life. So like what Moshe was talking about near the end of his service was, hey, you put before you life and death. So choose life. This is not a trick we're trying to fool you into choosing death. No. The road is put forward. Hey, this is the road that leads to life. Choose that one. But it'll give you a good taste of what the road that leads to death and where that's going to go. So lastly, we close out here that humanity's deal with death really has been going on since Eden and really can only be broken by what the red heifer shows, that the death of the red heifer is that which covers the death of the people of God. So thus, the death and resurrection of the Mashiach is that which deals with the death that has been going ever since the garden, ever since the in dying you will die. That's right. He conquered death. So when we, as Yeshua says, take up your cross daily, take up your means of death that you are headed towards ending your old way of life and the direction that it was going, when you take that up daily, you acknowledge that, hey, the old way of life, the one that had you there you know, going through the gears, peeling, peeling out, headed down the highway to hell, so to speak, yeah, that is not going to get you anywhere because that has the, the bridge out, so to speak, and you're going to go hailing off the edge. That life has got to die. But, you know, there are those among us, you may have known people that have gone through various recovery sorts of things, recovery programs. One of the first things they tell you to do is to do what? To 
take inventory of your life, to also rearrange your life, because when you take inventory of your life, rearrange and figure out, okay, these are the ways that led me down that road that I now realize I don't want to go down that road anymore. I realize I've got a problem going down that road all the time. So I don't want to go down that road anymore. So how did I get going down that road? And then when you realize, hey, this is what got me going down that road all the time, then what do you do? You stay away from those things that keep going you, uh, take, keep taking you down that road all the time. And that is something that we in the, the greater body of God have got to learn the same sort of lessons to take stock, just like what the uh, prophet King David said, you know, examine me, find everything about me, and then what? Lead me on to the ways to everlasting. So that examination period, that taking up your cross daily, that the things that have to die, the old way of life that has to die, to realize what that is every single day. If you know somebody who's going through some sort of recovery thing and they're really determined and have a good support structure to keep them on down that road, that is what they're encouraged to do every day because you know you talk to them, those triggers, the things that will convince them to go down the old way of life, they come all the time, lots of times a day. And each one of those times, it's like Moshe saying, Choose life, choose death, choose life, choose death. And you have to make that choice all the time. But, you know, for those of us that, you know, look back to the things that God has covered over, our sins, transgressions, and iniquities, choosing life and then trusting, choosing life, and then trusting, choosing life, and then trusting, choosing life. Over time, that becomes an easier choice to make. Because what? What, what is one of the, the key things that you see people have a, a challenge with in making a decision, whether you want to go one way or the other? It's trust issues. We talk about trust issues. Well, if you become very trustworthy, then people will want to go your direction. And if you find that someone is trustworthy, you are more likely to want to go in that particular direction. And if you find a way of life is more trustworthy, you're going to want to go in that direction more often. But trust is a big, big, big part of that. So now we've gone over this. Uh, if you want to see more on what all the connections are related to Hebrews chapter 9, the red heifer, the Day of Atonement. We cover a lot of that in our um, study that we do on the Day of Atonement, which is in uh, halal.info slash p29. It's on the, the, um, the Torah reading called Acharemot, um, which is the one that talks about Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement. So we've done lots of stuff related to uh, the book of Hebrews on that. So there's a lot of stuff that's under the hood. But one of the great things is that the mysteries related to the red heifer and the Day of Atonement and the tabernacle and the why of the sacrifices, a lot of those are revealed and put out as to why they are important and why they are not 
mirror or just a copy or just a type. They are hugely, critically important. Just like what we were saying at the beginning of services today with the um, passage from the Shema about where you teach your kids when you walk on the way, when you get up, when you lie down. That is what all of the patterns shown from the mountain in the tabernacle are all about. They are lessons that come up you know, throughout the year. Lessons that help us to keep ourselves oriented. The Day of Atonement shows us, hey, you cannot save yourself. There are the lessons that you have in Leviticus that you can sure turn yourself around and that there's good ways to make sure that your life has a lot of boundaries in it. But ultimately, with the things that really block you from a connection with the creator of heaven and earth, that's not something that you can deal with yourself. You have to call in the expert. And the expert is the Mashiach who's able to deal with that. So are there any last thoughts as we uh, close out here? There's a lot of other topics that we can go over that we've covered in years past. Uh, one of those in particular um, that really goes into details of things, uh, Numbers 21, about the serpent on the pole. That's a whole long discussion in and of itself, but hugely tied into the, um, what the message, the, the type, the pattern, in this case, yeah, not shown on the mountain, but showed on the spot of how to deal with the, with the serpents, the fiery serpents lifted up on the pole that you put your trust on that. And there are the passages that then come from the Gospels related to that. So that is a whole conversation in and of itself. But as we close out here and look forward to next week, next week we go over uh, section Balak, we cover Balaam, and that covers uh, numbers 22 through, uh, basically 20, 22 through 24. But interestingly enough, that the picture that here is a, an artist's rendition of the uh, angel of the Lord standing in the way of uh, Balaam or Balaam as he's on the donkey, um, that's an interesting picture. You, maybe you might have caught it there with the people who were standing in the way of Israel. Numbers 21, we saw there Edom and then Moab standing in the way of Israel, not letting them pass. So the question is, is that what, what is the message that should have, been, should have been received? The message to Edom, the message to Moab, who was standing at their door and who was blocking them from passing. And then we're going to go on next week and see with Bilam and the message that he was getting as to the direction that he was going and that, hey, you're going in the wrong direction. You need to turn around and go a different way. But just like what we were, we were talking about before, that if heaven gives you the message that you're going the wrong way and that you should turn around and then you just keep trying to persist and go ahead, um, it, we may face our, uh, see ourselves facing up against the angel of the Lord saying, hey, you're really headed in the wrong direction, the road that heads down towards death. 
You've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. Hallel.info. Hallel.info.